for coming here this evening. This is a great honor to have so many of us here together tonight to hear from the Chief Rabbi. On behalf of my entire family, my wife Jill, Avi Marie, my father and my teacher, Mr. Leon Wiles, Alice, for sponsoring tonight's program. My brother and sister-in-law, Michael and Amy, it's an honor to welcome all of you to the 17th annual uh, Shi'ur lecture in memory of my mother, Ruth Wilde, Aleha Shalom. This year, as you know, we are honored to hear from Great Britain's Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, who I welcome here this evening, together with Lady Sachs, who also honors us with her presence here tonight. I want to acknowledge the presence of Moreno Rabbeinu, Rabbi Dr. Norman Lamb, the Chancellor of Yeshiva University, who's with us tonight, Rabbi Yasser Levine, the rabbi here of the Jewish Center, noted author and speaker, Rabbi Benjamin Black, my MGD colleagues, Rabbi Penny Rosenthal, Rabbi Avi Heller, Rabbi Daniel Krauss, Rabbi Jonathan Feldman. We are privileged tonight to hear from an extraordinary rabbi and scholar of our generation. But before I call on Chief Rabbi Sachs, I say a brief word, as I do each year, about Pesel Abigail Basanatim, uh, our mother Aleha Shalom, in whose memory MGE was established, and to whom this lecture each year is dedicated. Just one week from tonight, it's Hanukkah, and we'll be gathering to light the candles and the menorah. And on the surface it may appear that we're just adding more candles to the candles we will have lit the night before in honor of Shabbat. But the truth is that these two types of candles represent very different concepts in Judaism. Talmud tells us that the reason we light the Shabbat candles is because of Oneg Shabbos, to rejoice in the Sabbath, and Mishum Shalom Bayez, because of, to create a certain peace and tranquility in the home. And so we're clearly lighting those candles to benefit from the illumination that they radiate. But when it comes to the Hanukkah candles, it's just the opposite. When it comes to the menorah, we're not even permitted to benefit from the light. We actually sing this in the song that some are accustomed to recite after the lighting. In the Hanera Salah, we say, We're not supposed to make use of them, just to look at them, just to see them. Because the purpose of the Hanukkah lights is pursuing Yisra. It's to publicize the miracle. It's to reveal to the outside world what happened to our ancestors. It's not to create light. And that's why we place those menorahs on the windowsill so that people on the outside can see and the optimum time to light is early after nightfall when most people are out. And so whereas we light the Shabbos candles to illuminate our homes to benefit from the light, the spirit of the Shabbat, we light the Hanukkah candles to publicize, to project and to share that spirit with those outside of our homes. My brother Michael and I were blessed to be raised in a home where both of these types of candles were lit. 
We had the Shabbos candles that our mother would light every Friday night. Symbolized by the extraordinary aura of spirituality that she infused our home with. And she encouraged us to take our Judaism seriously. She lit up our home with Yiddishkeit. But she also was concerned with those outside of our home. She wanted some of that light to be projected to those not within the family. She became very devoted to others in our community and beyond. I remember just a few years before she passed away, when my close friends from the neighborhood called to share the unfortunate news that his mother had just been diagnosed with an advanced stage cancer. And my mother basically moved into their home to, take, to help this woman take care of her family. And I remember just randomly walking to visit my friend and to see how he was doing and seeing my mother in their kitchen cooking. And another time seeing her taking the trash out for the family. And it's a picture that has remained with me all of these years. And it's an image that inspires me in the work that I'm privileged to do with MGE every day because when you boil it down, MGE at its core is about caring for those on the outside. It's sharing the brilliance of Torah with the thousands of our less affiliated Jewish brothers and sisters who live right here in New York City, in the tri-state area. It's about ensuring that every Jew, regardless of their affiliation or background, is given a chance to taste the beauty of Shabbat, to experience the warmth of our community, and to be inspired by the wisdom of our Torah. We light the Shabbat candles in our home so that we can be filled with our tradition. But we also, we have a responsibility to project some of that light to those on the outside. Others must also be given the opportunity to be included and to be inspired. It's been 13 years and we've shared that light with thousands, hundreds of whom are today committed attending Shabbat services every week sending their children to day schools or by Sachs it's just mentioning 115 couples met and married through MGE and every year from our four locations in the city thousands come to our Shabbat dinners our classes hundreds come on our retreats and our trips to Israel many for the very first time in their lives coming to Israel with us and tonight I want to recognize the presence of in the VIP section, where they should be. The presence of 15 of our students. The 2012 MGE Fellowship class, who have committed to two nights of Torah study each week, which is capped off at the end of the year with a great trip to Israel. It's our sixth class. And to me, each and every one of you is a hero for taking your Judaism as seriously as you are, despite not having had that background, for stepping it up and becoming leaders in our community. All this has happened because we have not only lit the candles for ourselves, but because we're sharing that message with those on the outside. But it has to be a message that resonates. It has to be a message that reverberates for the hundreds of thousands of our Jewish brothers and sisters who remain unaffiliated. 
Ladies and gentlemen, our honored speaker this evening, Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs, has a message that reverberates with the broadest segment of the Jewish community internationally. His message resonates not only with those privileged to be raised in Torah and misvotes, but also with those who are not. It's a Judaism that speaks to the issues of the day. It's a Judaism which is expressed in a way that contemporary men and women, young and old, religious or secular, can learn to appreciate the profundity and the depth of our Torah. And that is why I'm so often quote from so many of Rabbi Sachs's books and articles, because they help me transmit the important concepts, ideas, and thoughts, which are relevant and inspirational, and I thank you, Rabbi, on behalf of all of my colleagues at MGE and all the rabbis the world over for giving us the incredible Torah that you've written in your many books, articles, and online. And Bezrat Hashem, we look forward to hearing some of that more this evening. Rabbi Sachs has been the chief rabbi of the United Hebrew Congregations of the British Commonwealth since September 1991. He was educated Gonville and Chaos College in Cambridge, where he obtained first-class honors in philosophy. Rabbi Sachs pursued his postgraduate studies at New College, Oxford, King's College, London, gaining his PhD in 1981 in his rabbinic ordination from Jews College and Yeshiva Itzchayim. He's been a visiting professor at several universities in Britain, the United States, and in Israel, and is currently visiting professor of theology at King's College in London. He holds 14 honorary degrees, including a Doctor of Divinity conferred by the Archbishop of Canterbury. Chief Rabbi has received a number of prizes, including the Jerusalem Prize in 1995, and in 2005 was knighted by Her Majesty the Queen and was made a life peer, taking his seat in the House of Lords in October 2009. Chief Rabbi is a frequent contributor to radio, to television. He regularly delivers BBC Radio 4's Thought for the Day, a monthly credo column he writes for the Times and broadcasts its annual Rosh Hashanah message for the BBC. He has written 24 amazing books. His most recent called The Great Partnership, God, Science, and the Search for Meaning. Chief Rabbi is married to Rebetzin Elaine, the Lady Sachs that we welcome this evening, and together we are in her, they have three children and six grandchildren. Ladies and gentlemen, it is my great pleasure and honor to introduce Chief Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs. Rabbi Wilde, beloved mentor of us all, Rabbi Norman Lamb, Robertson Lamb, Rabbi Yossi Levine Maradatra, beloved friends, it's an enormous privilege and honor to pay tribute to the memory of a remarkable woman, the late Ruth Wilde's Zichra Livracha, Tzadikim B'mitatam Nikrem Chaim. The righteous, even after their death, are called living. 
Shakespeare's Mark Antony said, the evil men do live after, lives after them, the good is oft interred with their bones. He was precisely wrong. The good we do lives after us, and it is the greatest thing that does. A great life sends out ripples of goodness in the lives of others that continue long, long afterwards, generating blessing in this world. And I say to Leon, and to Mark, and to Michael, and to all the family, it is a privilege to remember a great woman who has inspired so many, especially you, Mark, to take her message to the world. Let me congratulate you so much on the Manhattan Jewish experience, which is, uh, judging by the audience here, you must have come for the food, guys. You didn't come for me. <laughs> but uh, what a tremendous, tremendous impact you've had. And I wish you mazel tov on all the shiduchim, you know. Uh, you know, to make one shiduch is as hard, says the Midrash, is dividing the Red Sea to make 115 you got the front row seat, Papa Purpisundra and Svansik next to Hashem in the world to come. And friends, finally, I hope you'll forgive me if I occasionally fall asleep in this address, but it is half past one in the morning, English time, and it reminds me of that wonderful story about the man who dreamt he was giving a speech in the House of Lords and woke up to discover he was. <laughs> Friends, the title, Jewish Identity in whatever it is in Age of Facebook, I don't know, but behind the title is the obvious fact. Rahman al-Islam, we're losing Jews. We're losing Jews because somehow a message doesn't resonate. And there was something that a great rabbi, the rabbi who spent his life working with young Jews, the late Rabbi Shlomo Kalbach, a blessed memory, who went around campuses throughout a lifetime. And at the end, towards the end of his life, he summed up his experience. He said, I go around campuses and I ask people, what are you? And if somebody gets up and says, I'm a Protestant, I know that's a Protestant. If they get up and say, I'm a Catholic, I know that's a Catholic. If they get up and say, I'm just a human being, I know that's a Jew. <laughs> So how was it that having survived every empire, every assault, we are losing the plot in the 21st century in an age in which, for the first time perhaps, in all 4,000 years of Jewish history, we have simultaneously independence and statehood in Medinat Yisrael and equality and dignity in the diaspora. How is it that when Sisvet Suzaini Yid, when it's hard to be a Jew, nonetheless everyone's Jewish. But when it's easy to be a Jew, Jews walk. Go figure. What is it that we're missing? There is a TED lecturer called Simon Sinek who delivered a lovely lecture and wrote a book with the same title called Start With Why. And that's what I think we sometimes don't do. Why are we Jews? Why is there a Jewish people? Why me? 
Now for generation after generation after generation, Jews did not ask that question. The reason was it didn't occur to them. Why be Jewish? Because my parents are Jewish, my Baba and Zayda are Jewish. That's who I am. It was something you took for granted. But the great sociologist Peter Berger says that the nature of modernity is that it transforms the world from fate to choice. And that is what has happened to Jewish identity. In the past, people accepted Jewish identity as a fate. But now it's a choice. And the result is that many Jews are not choosing to be Jewish because in this diverse society with its almost infinite available choices of lifestyle, why specially be Jewish? So, since Mark posed this question to me, I kind of scribbled down my answers. If they're terrible, you'll invite me back and I'll think of a few more. But anyway, here, here, here they go. Number one, I don't know if the name has crossed the Atlantic. Have you heard of somebody called Richard Dawkins? Yeah? The world's famous, most famous and angriest atheist. Well, I happen to, my last book was on God and religion and science. And the BBC asked me to do a television program with Richard Dawkins, which I did, and it was very nice. And I got him to read out the letter he wrote to his daughter, then 10 years old, in, in, encouraging her to be an atheist. And he said, when anyone ever tells you something, always ask for the evidence. Never accept anything without the evidence. So I said to him, Richard, do you hold by that? He said, yes. I said, will you go wherever the evidence takes you? He says, yes. I said, well, you hold, Richard, that being religious makes you stupid, right? He said, yes. So I said, well, consider the following piece of evidence. Jews are one-fifth of one percent of the population of humankind. They have won 20% of Nobel Prizes in chemistry, 26% of Nobel Prizes in physics, 27% in medicine, 41% in economics. Where does that evidence take you, Richard? And he looked at me, he was genuinely shocked. And he said, you know what? Jews must be different. <laughs> and when an atheist tells you that, you listen. <laughs> and why is it? The answer is quite simple. Because no religion, no civilization in all of history has so valued, indeed predicated, its survival on study. I once had the privilege of writing Divrei Torah for President Bill Clinton. How this happened, don't ask, that, just don't ask. I do hope you didn't encourage him to have Jewish girlfriends. I just... Anyway, I wrote the following to he liked it, he sent me a beautiful letter 
back thanking me for it and here it was I said imagine Mr. President you are given the greatest opportunity that anyone has ever had to make a speech that goes down in history your people have been in exile for 210 years they've been enslaved they've been at risk of attempted genocide and now after a series of miracles you are about to announce that in a few days time they are going to be free you gather them together and you make a speech what do you speak about probably you speak about liberty if you wanted to give them enthusiasm, you might speak about the destination that lay ahead, the Eretz Zabat Kalavu Devash, the land flowing with milk and honey. Or if you were made of sterner stuff, you might warn them of the arduous journey that lay ahead, in Nelson Mandela's words, the long walk to freedom. Had you given any of those speeches, it would have been the great speech of a great leader. Moses did none of those things. And that is what made him a unique leader. If you look at Parshat Bo, the 12th and 13th chapters of the book of Exodus, you will see three times he returned to the same theme. If your child asks you in the future, so you shall teach him. And your children say this to you, this is how you shall answer them. You shall teach your child on that day. They're thinking about freedom and tomorrow he is thinking about the distant future and the duty of education why because to defend a country you need an army but to defend a civilization you need education as the conversation between the generations and that is why Jews became the people whose heroes were teachers, whose citadels were schools, and whose passion was education and the life of the mind. As Sergey Brin, co-founder of Google, once said in a newspaper interview, we came from one of those secular Russian Jewish families where you expected even the plumber to have a PhD. <laughs> That is a remarkable tradition to want to belong to. And why indeed are Jews not merely people who study, but people who achieve excellence in study? The answer is, of course, well as Isidore Rabi, the Nobel Prize winning physicist said, my mother made me a scientist. Why? Because when I was five and I first went to school, and the other kids came back from home, their parents asked you, what did you learn in school today? My mother said, Izzy, did you ask a good kasha today? Jews ask questions, we take nothing for granted. You know there was an English parliamentary scandal. It was called the cash for questions scandal. MPs were being paid to ask questions in Parliament. I said that's the difference between the English and the Jews. The English you have to pay to ask questions. The Jews you have to pay not to ask questions. <laughs> Just figure, Socrates is condemned to death by the citizens of Athens for corrupting the young by teaching them to ask questions. What Socrates did that was condemned by the Athenians, every Jewish parent does as a matter of religious obligation. The worst thing in the world is to be a child that doesn't know how to ask. And if your child doesn't know how to ask, you have to teach it to ask questions. So point one, why be Jewish? It's good for the mind.
Number two, there is an almost unique feature of Judaism that sets it apart from, as far as I know, every other great religion in the world. I don't know if we are fully aware of this. Every religion, or at least all the Abrahamic monotheisms, is troubled by the following question. Tzadik Varalo. Why do bad things happen to good people? And every other religion gives one of the following answers. There is justice, but it's in an afterlife. Or you will find it by a mystic retreat from the world in which you say goodbye to the world and all its sufferings. Or you will see that suffering is elevating the soul. John Keats, the poet, called it this life a veil of soul making. In other words, every other religion I know faced with the question of injustice in this world produces a doctrine of acceptance. Judaism doesn't. Judaism is a religion of protest. The question Sadi Viralo is not asked by radicals questioning faith, it is asked by the very heroes of faith itself. Abraham Avinu says, shall the judge of all the earth not do justice. Moshe Rabbeinu says, Why have you done evil to this people? Jeremiah says, Every time I argue with you about justice, you win. But still I want to ask, why do the wicked prosper? Why do the righteous suffer? The whole book of Job is dedicated to that question. In Judaism, the question is not marginal to faith, it is at the very heart of faith. Why? Because Judaism, and again, I don't know how many of us are fully aware of this, Judaism is born in the cognitive dissonance between the world that is and the world that ought to be. That is where our whole Jewish sensibility begins. And the only way you can reconcile the dissonance between the world that is and the world to be, that ought to be is not by some piece of theology or some meditation. It is by getting up and doing something to make this world a little better so that the gap between where we are and where we should be becomes a little smaller. That is why we protest the injustice of this world and we do something about it. That is why you will find a disproportionate number of Jews as doctors fighting disease, as economists fighting poverty, as lawyers fighting injustice, as teachers and academics fighting ignorance. We don't accept the evil of this world. We take up arms against it. We had an extraordinary summer in Britain this year. Some of you may have seen the Olympics. Did you see the Olympics? You probably saw the Diamond Jubilee as well. You saw that? The, the Queen's 60th anniversary, we uh, presented a loyal address to her. And we wished her, on behalf of the Jewish community, Bisundrin <laughs> Svansi. 
We explained she should live to 120, and the Queen had never heard this before. This is a true story. And as we were saying this, she turned to Prince Philip and smiled, and he smiled back. And Prince Philip is 90, you know that. And at the reception afterwards, he came up to me, and he said, Does that mean I've got to put up with this lot for another 30 years? true story. However, it really is a true story. However, we had the Olympics. Now, I, I hope I don't disillusion you if I tell you that Jews did not invent the Olympics. That was the Greeks a long time ago and we had a little forible with them called Hanukkah, so we didn't invent the Olympics. However, there was immediately after the Olympics an event which sadly you did not properly see in America, but was given as much publicity in Europe as the Olympics themselves. And it was unbelievably moving. It was called the Paralympics. The Olympics for people with serious injuries. And just before the Paralympics, the BBC showed a one and a half hour film about the creator of the Paralympics. It's called The Best of Men. I don't know. I don't think it's been shown in America, has it? I don't think so. Did any of you see this film called The Best of Men? You saw it. But I, I, and it's available in America? On YouTube. <laughs> All the best things are on YouTube. See our Osegelo and we hum along for three minutes, 51 seconds. Anyway. Um, it is, I tell you, one of the most moving films I have ever seen. It tells the story of a Dr. Ludwig Gutmann. Ludwig Gutmann, born into an Orthodox Jewish family in Germany, by 1933 was Germany's top brain surgeon, top neurosurgeon. Hitler comes to power, all Jews are instantly removed from all the professions. He spends another five years in Germany at a Jewish hospital and then is forced to leave for England. The British government discover they have one of the world's leading neuroscientists and in late 1943 they ask him to set up the first dedicated unit for paraplegics in Britain, in a, hotel, in a hospital called Stoke Mandeville, which he starts in 1944. And the film was about his experience there between 1944 and 1948. You know what he discovers? He discovers that paraplegics, people with, with serious spinal injuries, incurable spiral injuries, spinal injuries, are assumed to have no life expectancy. They're kept heavily sedated, flat out on hospital beds, and given a painless death. Their life expectancy was between three and six months. He comes along as a Jew. And a Jew knows one thing. Choose life. And he looks at these young men. And he says, they have a life ahead of them, not just a life behind them. And he vows to give them back lives. And it is painful. And he is opposed by the nurses and doctors at every stage of the way. First of all, he has to halve their painkillers 
Because it's the painkillers that are keeping them uh, flat out. They can't do anything. And it hurts. Then he has to get them to sit up. And it hurts. Then he gets, has to get them moving their arms. So he th- he's throwing basketballs at them. And it hurts. And then he gets them into wheelchairs. And that hurts. And then he gets them out of their hospital room into the hospital garden. And that hurts. And then he gets them to play games in their wheelchairs. And then he gets the doctors and nurses into the wheelchairs to play games with the paraplegics. And of course, the paraplegics win. And the paraplegics are so caught up in this game playing that they forget that they have no life. And they're full of energy and enthusiasm. And so he organizes a national games. And then in 1948, an international games, the first parallel Olympics, which 20 years later becomes officially adopted as the Paralympics. And this film is so beautiful. I mean, it shows him as, a, as a, an Orthodox Jew going home for Shabbos and lighting with his wife and the candles and Shabbat Shalom. And the doctors, early on in the process, summon him before a tribunal. They think he is raising the patient's hopes, impossibly, and treating them cruelly. And they turn to him and say, Can't you see these are moribund cripples? What do you think they are? And he looks at the doctors and he says, The best of men. That man gave back all these people their lives. And this year, when we had 4,000 Paralympics from 140 different countries, watched by tens of millions of people, and nobody who watched those games was not moved by the dignity of these people and their courage, Here is one man who gave back a whole section of humanity, their lives, their dignity. Why? Because Jews do not accept. Jews fight for life and for justice. And I believe that isn't just incredible reason to be Jewish. Third, tzedakah. It's a very interesting thing. Take the word tzedakah. What's that mean? Justice or charity? Both. Okay, now listen. Here is the following thing. If I give you a thousand dollars because I owe you a thousand dollars, that's justice, right? If I give you a thousand dollars because I don't owe you anything but I think you need it, that's charity, right? So a thing can either be justice or it can be charity, but it can't be both. They repel one another like magnets. You, you can't be both justice and charity. In Judaism, the two things that cannot be put together in any other language are bonded by superglue.
Why? Because in Judaism, uniquely, we hold that what we possess, we don't really own. Everything we have belongs to Hashem and He has merely added it as to entrust. And therefore, one of the conditions of that trust is that when we have more than we need, we share that with people who have less than we need. And that is both charity and justice. A word that tzedakah cannot be translated into the English language. I love the story about the great English Jew, Sir Moses Montefiore, you know, the great Victorian Jew who made a very smart career move. He married a Rothschild. (laughs) The result of which is he was able to uh, retire at the age of 40 and devote the rest of his long life. He lived to over a hundred in the 19th century when living to over a hundred was worth something and nowadays it's Baruch Hashem, it's uh, normal but in those days very unusual and somebody once asked him tell me, Sir Moses, what are you worth? and he mentioned, I don't know, X hundred thousand pounds and his interlocutor said Sir Moses, I know you're worth millions why did you say a hundred thousand pounds? this is in the 1850s He said, you didn't ask me what I owe. You asked me what I'm worth. So I told you how much I gave you in tzedakah, how much I gave in tzedakah this year. Because, and these were his words, we are worth what we are willing to share with others. And that Jewish tradition of tzedakah is the third reason why I believe anyone should be Jewish. So, education, protest, tzedakah. And of course, the fourth reason, undoubtedly, is Shabbos. Um, You may not know this, but there is one thing we are envied for almost more than anything else, and that's Shabbos. Um, I spent, Elaine and I spent a week with the Dalai Lama in North India in Amritsar, the city of the Golden Temple with Hindus and Sikhs and I actually had the privilege, Elaine and I had the privilege of seeing the leader of British Sikhs get up in Amritsar in front of 2,000 Sikhs saying, you know what we Sikhs need? We need what the Jews have, we need Shabbos! He said, you cannot believe this day. They spend a day every week with their family, with their children, with their grandchildren, with their friends. It's beautiful. We need it. I said, stop telling that to the Sikhs. Come and tell it to my congregation. (laughs) Many years ago, I did a documentary. I produced a documentary for the BBC on the state of the family in Britain. It was not a Jewish program at all. But um, as a matter of interest, I took Britain's leading childcare expert, Penelope Leach, who'd written all the books on bringing up children, and a non-Jew who doesn't know Jews. And I thought it'd be interesting to take a non-Jewish childcare expert to one of our Jewish primary schools, just to see if it sparked any, uh, any, uh, any, any anything. Anyway, I took Penelope to one of our primary schools on a Friday morning. I don't know if your Jewish schools are like this. Friday morning they have the Mok Shabbat with a five-year-old 
daddy and mom, father and mother, and the five-year-old Boober and Zayda, and they're blessing the five-year-old children, and she's blown away by all of this. She never saw anything like it. And she's asking the kids, these five-year-olds, Shabbos, what's it like? What don't you like? What do you like? What don't you like? What don't you like about Shabbos? This five-year-old boy said, I can't watch television, it's terrible. And she said, and what do you like about Shabbos? She said, he said, I like Shabbos because it's the only time daddy doesn't have to rush off. And as we were leaving the school, Penelope Leach turned to me and said, Chief Rabbi, you know that Sabbath of yours is saving their parents' marriages. Once in a while, when you're Chief Rabbi, you have to deal with angry people, whom we seem to be super abundant in producing. Once some years ago, I received a letter that was so angry, I felt I had not to reply in writing, but pick up the phone and deal with it immediately. It was a young man who had come to our office to register for a marriage, only to be told that we, he could not get married under the auspices of the chief rabbi. His wife was a non-Orthodox convert, and we just couldn't do it. Uh, and this young man wrote to me in enormous burning anger, saying, Chief Rama, you're always talking about trying to be inclusive, and here you are shutting us out. So I picked up the phone, and I said, look, you are due shortly to get married. This should be the happiest day of your life. Don't turn it into World War III. Do me a favor. Go to the shul that converted your wife. Get married there. Have the most beautiful wedding you can. Have the most wonderful honeymoon you can. And when you come back, sit down with your wife. And between you, answer the following question. Do you want, does she want to go the extra mile to have an orthodox conversion? If so, I will supervise it and ensure that it happens. And if not, I wish both of you a lifetime of happiness. Well, they got married, they had their honeymoon, they came back and they decided to enroll the wife for an orthodox conversion. That's when explosion number two occurred. <laughs> what was explosion number two? Your base in expects me, says the young man, to keep Shabbos. <laughs> I don't need to keep Shabbos, I'm Jewish already. She needs to keep Shabbos. I said, Habibi, do me a favor. You want to make a Jewish home? For the sake of your wife, keep Shabbos. Very grudgingly, he agreed. And the conversion went through, and we fixed the date of the chuppah, and I officiated at the wedding. 
However, one month before the wedding, I get another phone call. Chief Rabbi, I've got to come around and see you. And I'm thinking to myself, what is it this time? And I just didn't know. I was dreading this encounter. And he comes with his wife, and by this time they have a little baby. And I'm waiting for what he's going to attack me on next. And he says, Chief Rabbi, I just wanted to say thank you for bringing Shabbos into my life. Until now, I have been a workaholic. I worked seven days a week. Because of you, I now have time for my wife and family. Because of you, we are making friends. Because of Shabbos, for the first time, I feel part of a community. And you know what? All the work that used to take seven days a week now only takes six days a week. <laughs> and that is how I saw Shabbos transform a life. We're about to celebrate Hanukkah. And Hanukkah, I don't know if you know Mark, have you ever read the Greek writers on Shabbos? They couldn't understand Shabbos at all. All of the Greek writers thought Jews kept Shabbos because they were lazy. They had no other explanation for it. All nations had festivals, but no nation had a festival which you celebrated by not working, and they couldn't understand it at all. And you know the difference between us and the Greeks? The Greeks who produced Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, who produced Sophocles and Aeschylus, who produced the greatest cultural civilization the world has ever known, flourished for four centuries and then disappeared. Suffering from burnout because they never had a Shabbos. And we, who rested one day in seven and reminded ourselves why we are here, are still here, still young, and still full of life. That is my second, fourth reason, Shabbos. I think I'm running out of time, so I will just uh, say two more reasons. Number one, here it is. Oh no, no, okay, all right, number five, sense of humor. Sense of humor. Jewish humor is wonderful. I, don't you think? I, uh, I t- I'm going to tell you a story. Since I'm about to retire, I can tell this story. <coughs> this occurred just before I was officially appointed as chief rabbi. I had been chosen but not yet inducted as chief rabbi. George Carey had been inducted, chosen but not yet inducted as Archbishop of Canterbury. And somebody discovered, I don't know how, that we both shared the same football club. We were, do you know about this thing called soccer? Uh, we both were passionate supporters of a football team called Arsenal. And he said, would you like your first ecumenical gathering to be in our box at Highbury Stadium? midweek match for obvious religious reasons I said wonderful, the Archbishop said Vada Machaya and we and we met it's happened in November 1990 there it is floodlit match, they take us out to meet the players they take us out Al Admat Kodesh on the holy ground itself and 
when the public address system announces tonight we have with us the new Archbishop of Canterbury and the new Chief Rabbi and you could hear the buzz go round the ground whichever way you play the theological wager that night Arsenal had friends in high places they couldn't possibly lose that night Arsenal went down to their worst home defeat in 63 years. They lost 6-2 at home to Manchester United. The next day, and this is absolutely true story, an English newspaper carried the following news item. If the Chief Archbishop of Canterbury and the Chief Rabbi together cannot bring about a win for Arsenal, does this not finally prove that God does not exist? (laughs) The next day, they printed my reply. Which went as follows. No, it proves that God exists. It's just that he supports Manchester United. (laughs) A people who has suffered the way we have suffered and yet never lose the ability to laugh even when your team loses. Be part of that people. And finally, finally... what I call dignity of difference. And here we come finally to your question of the multicultural society. You see, Jews have always believed. You chose us from all nations, you loved us. And yet it has become very difficult to express this idea of chosen people in the modern world it sounds exclusivist, supremacist, racist and I wrestled with this for many years I wrote a book about, well I wrote a book about it called A Letter in the Scroll and then about Jewish life and then generally applied it in a book called Dignity of Difference and in it I argued the following I said that Judaism was born in a protest against empires. Judaism was not born at the beginning of humanity. The Bible does not begin with the Jewish people. It begins with humanity at large, Adam and Eve, Cain and Abel, Noah and the flood, Babel and its builders. It doesn't deal with Judaism with a singular individual until Genesis chapter 12. Why is it? The the plot suddenly shifts. And the only answer I could come up with, and this is something I've thought about for many years, is that Judaism was born the moment empires were born, and we were born as a protest against them. If you read the Torah, I believe you will see that it is telling us that the miracle of monotheism is that unity up there creates diversity down here. And imperialism, or what in the 21st century we call fundamentalism, is an assault on that. It is an attempt to impose a singular truth on a plural world. And God said to Abraham and Sarah, go and be different. To teach the world the importance of difference, the dignity of difference. That 
that wonderful idea expressed in the Mishnah of Sanhedrin that when a human being mints many coins in the same mold, they all come out alike. God mints every one of us in the same mold, His image. And yet we all come out different. That is what Judaism teaches the world. We are different in order to give courage to every small group in the world or every individual in the world who wants to be different. And you will say, everyone is different. What makes Jews differently different? The answer is, yes, everyone is different. But Jews are the only people who consistently throughout history have stood up for the right to be different, the duty to be different. We were the only people who throughout the ages refused to assimilate to the dominant culture or convert to the dominant faith. That is a remarkable statement. The God of Israel is the God of all humanity, but the religion of Israel is not the religion of all humanity. To teach us that that there are other nations, other ways of reaching heaven, but we are all part of humanity together. As I once said, Judaism teaches the twin principles of commonality and difference, because if we were completely unalike, we couldn't communicate. But if we were all exactly the same, we'd have nothing to say. And that is a principle we need in the 21st century. We really do. And I have to tell you, that when I speak about the dignity of difference to Sikhs, to Hindus, to moderate Muslims, to every minority group that I deal with, and I take it as one of my duties on behalf of the Jewish community to reach out to every minority group and every majority group likewise. When I give them this message, they walk a little taller because until now they knew they were different, but they thought that was a bad thing, and now suddenly here's a Rav telling them it's a good thing. That's what God wants. Because each of us is different, each of us has something unique to contribute. And that is the message Judaism has taught the world. It has taught the world that you can be assaulted by every empire the world has known. By powers that seemed impregnable in their time, that bestrode the narrow world like a colossus. Egypt, of the Pharaohs, Assyria, Babylonia, the Alexandrian Empire, the Roman Empire, the medieval empires of Christianity and Islam, all the way through in the 20th century to the Third Reich and the Soviet Union, and every one of those civilizations has been consigned to history, and our tiny people can still stand and sing Am Yisrael Chai. And I mentioned to Mark just before, uh, when we had a little quiet time together uh, with a little few friends just before, that the students of University of London and British non-Jewish students who are not always 100% sympathetic to Israel and not always sympathetic to us were so moved by this message that we, they actually put a plaque by the front door of the student union in London University with the sentence from Rabbi Sachs, the dignity of difference, which reads, because we are all different, we all have something unique to contribute. Don't believe for one second that being Jewish is good only for 
the Jewish people being Jewish with courage and pride gives courage and pride to every small people. We are there to teach you you can be small and yet great. You can be powerless and yet still influential. You can achieve things beyond the beliefs that you are capable of doing. Judaism is the living, sustained refutation of probability by the sheer power of possibility. And that makes us something special to everyone. I have to tell you, 10 years ago, we've just celebrated Her Majesty's 60th anniversary. 10 years ago, we were celebrating a golden jubilee. She gave a reception in Buckingham Palace for Koma Minimshu, all the faiths, and it's very nice, and we're all there being interfaith together. And this is May 2002, and I want to remind you what May 2002, what was going on in the world, that was when Jenin was happening and Jewish-Muslim relations were not the highest they have ever been and a very from Muslim comes up to me and says are you the chief rabbi? I said yes he said my wife wants a word with you and I'm considering what is she going to say to me and a lady comes up in a big hijab and says chief rabbi I just want to thank you for your book A Letter in the Scroll Now this is my book of Jewish pride. And here is a Muslim thanking me for that. Why? Because, as you said about Hanukkah, when we light a candle in a dark world, we light up the world for everyone, not just for ourselves alone. So friends, these are some reasons to be Jewish, and there are many more. However, I end with... A slightly embarrassing story, but always, to me, sums it up. You know, you know, it gets cold in New York in winter. But for sheer miserableness, you really can't beat a British winter. You know, that's, that's really miserable, you know. I have finally come to the conclusion that the British weather is the Almighty's Aliyah campaign. <laughs> And on one very, very miserable winter, 30 years ago, long before I became chief rabbi, I said to Elaine, let's go somewhere where there's sun in the winter. Let's go to Elat. Now, you know, this is 30 years ago. I think Elat has been built up a little since then. But let's go to Elat. We mentioned this to some friends who said, Rabbi Sachs, don't go to Elat. It's not Rabbonish. The standards of sneers, of modesty in dress, do not necessarily come up to rabbinic expectations. Uh, we went. They were right. I spent the whole week with my glasses off, bumping into everything. And we're looking, what is a remotely Rabbonish thing to do in Elat? And finally, we discover something. They have, used to have in Elat, I don't know if they still do, glass bottom boats. You could go out and look at the lovely pretty colored fish. So we went out on a glass bottom boat. We were the only passengers on the boat. We're speaking in English. The captain runs up to us very excitedly and says, Are you from England? And we say, Yes, why do you ask? He says, Oh, 
I went to holiday this summer in England. We said, how did you like it? He said, wonderful. The buildings, so old. The grass, so green. The people, so polite. And then, looking around him at the barren brown hills, an enormous smile came on his face. And he said, But this is ours. Friends, there are other civilizations, other faiths, other nations, all of which did great things. But this is ours. Let us wear our Jewish identity with pride. And let us bring blessing to the world. Thank you. within Judaism itself. Now look, this is a very, very serious, difficult and intractable issue. And I had to face it in my own chief ravenant. And I thought about it for a long time and I came up with two principles which have integrity and which work. And they have allowed us to resolve virtually every internal conflict within the community between orthodoxy and others. Number one, on all matters that affect us as Jews regardless of our religious differences, we will work together regardless of our religious differences. Number two, on all matters that touch on our religious differences, we will agree to differ, but with respect. So, Orthodox, non-Orthodox, secular Jews work together in Anglo-Jewry. I sit with non-Orthodox leaders and rabbis and the rest on interfaith work, defending Israel, fighting anti-Semitism, promoting welfare, and all the many, many other things that constitute roughly one half of our activity as a community. On the matters where we take different stances and cannot uh, work together, then we act 
totally, respectfully and civilly with one another. And that is the best we can do in a world in which those fractures still run deep. And what they mean is that our community, which frankly suffered a great deal of denominational tension 15 or so years ago, all those tensions have now been healed, and we haven't had a a single issue, I think, in the last 10 years uh, that has caused uh, division in the community. I think so. Although some divisions have been reported and uh, that simply didn't exist. Those principles have integrity. And it means that all the Orthodox rabbinate know and work with non-Orthodox rabbis on things that are completely non-controversial. And that means that there is between us a bond of personal friendship which takes us through all the difficult issues. As I'm listening to your message, it seems like one of the uh, hallmarks of you as a Shlia, as an emissary, is um, Jewish pride. You speak about um, our Jewish protest of the pride in being different and how that is a beautiful thing to to add to this world to God. Um, But it seems almost in contrast to the way other people kind of approach idea of being a Jewish emissary to the world. A lot of people, um, not that these students are mutually exclusive, but focus on creating um, a more inward-facing, warm experience for other Jews. Like, for example, here at FJD, we, you know, bring, we, we have a very warm, open community and we teach Jews what it's like to, to experience Shabbos in the moment, to see things see a certain way of life. But in a way, your message seems very outward-facing. Um, and it seems like maybe this is something that, you know, a lot of Jewish communities have learned from is that they can also, that they can be warm and also have like a level of private faces out towards the rest of the world. It's kind of wondering what prompted you to make that shift from just looking inward at the community to both looking into the community and looking out, and then likewise, how we can kind of apply that to our community here, how we can keep that warm um, and open door or show people what God is like, and at the same time, project out to That is an incredibly insightful question, and I'm going to give you a deeply personal answer because this is part of my life story. When I became chief rabbi, I realized that the biggest challenge facing Anglo Jewry was the fact that young Jews were growing up not knowing about Judaism. And I therefore realized that if we did not build a whole lot of Jewish day schools, we would not have a future as a Jewish community. And therefore I began an enormous campaign, very early in my chief rabbinate, around the question, will we have Jewish grandchildren? We created a big organization called Jewish Continuity. The result of that is when I became chief rabbi, 25% of Jewish kids went to Jewish day schools. Today, 70% of Jewish kids go to Jewish day schools. 
So after the first 10 years, I discovered I had effectively turned the Jewish community inward. And then I realized, well, okay, if I've turned us inward, what are we doing? Are we going to build another imaginary ghetto? Are we going to disconnect from the world? That is not how I understand Judaism. That is when I wrote a book in 2005, after I'd been chief rabbi already for 14 years, called To Heal a Fractured World, which was my attempt to turn the Jewish community outward. The two go hand in hand, though you can't pursue them both uh, simultaneously. I mean, do you know what I mean? They, first of all, you've got to turn them inward so that they feel, as you said, the warmth of a Shabbos. And that's the fire, that's the fuel. And that should give you the confidence to go out in the world and not fear a thing. Don't all our kids sing that? You have to have enough faith, enough fire. You have to daven with enough passion, celebrate Shabbos with enough warmth. Do hachnosis orchim, bring people into your home. You build that warmth, then you go and take it out into the world, exactly as Mark said. First you light the Shabbos candles and illuminate the inside, then you light the Hanukkah candles and illuminate the outside. And that is where I see Judaism's greatness. Some people are attracted to the outside stuff, the Tikkun Olam stuff, okay? So it's our job to slap them into learning and keeping Shabbos and all that stuff. There's some people who love the keeping Shabbos, but can't connect with the outside world. Well, look, some of them, I wish them every blessing. But our job, frankly, is to go out and be a blessing to the world. And uh, therefore I think when our internal home, Jewish experience is strong, we can go out there and transform the world. People follow the passion. When Jews have passion, they lift everyone. Yeah. Yeah. And the one thing is something that I struggle with and many others like myself who didn't grow up in the Orthodox world, but when you turn to it, and let's say you have a college background experience, you find that times there's a challenge because the more inward you turn to halakhic ideals and values, there's more of a conflict of holding a universalist mindset. Yeah. And your message and your book being a difference to many others who share this and speaks to many others. We find out that, that this voice is often secluded or it's not looked as an ideal. It's looked as an idea to say. And I wanted to get your opinion of why you think that is that a lot of people have perception that Orthodox Jewry is truly what it means to be more insolently secluded and this voice is, let's say, unique per se, that it doesn't have a flash of what it means to be a Jew in the world. Yeah. So I want to think Well, look. <clears throat> I have to say that, uh, you know, when it comes to that Torah Mada thing, um, <laughs> since Norman Lamb, Rabbi Norman Lamb is sitting at the moment, I may be what is called the last man standing. <laughs> to say I am going against the tide would be an understatement. 
But fishermen, I don't fish, I haven't got the patience. Fishermen tell me, if you want to know whether a fish is alive or dead, see whether it swims against the tide. To my mind, Jews have to swim against the tide. We are a nation of iconoclasts. Ever since Avram broke his father's idols, and if we have to be iconoclasts and say something that is deeply unpopular in the contemporary Orthodox world, then we have to say it. But I have to say that, uh, I repeat, when did halacha grow up, reach its quintessential expression? The answer is, throughout the long centuries, I mean the Mishnah was written down, Torah Balpeh goes back to Mount Sinai, but the Midrash, Mishnah, Gemara, the Gonim, the Shulchan Aruch, etc. All of these belong to an age where Jews had no home, no rights, no power, no nothing. And in that rightless, powerless world, along came Halacha. And to quote Hamlet, my kingdom might be bounded by a nutshell, but I count myself king of infinite space. Somehow, through Halacha and Kabbalah, our sages through the generations in those long bitter centuries of exile live lives of holiness. However, you and I know we are now living in a world in which there's a state of Israel in which we are voting members of a plural of liberal democracies I am part of a country where a Jewish voice is given sometimes more attention than the voice of any other religion because we talk sense and occasionally we tell a joke so people listen and do you not find it ironic that when Jews after 2,000 years have returned to their land, when Hebrew after uh, I don't know how many thousand of years has reborn as a language of living everyday speech, the form of Judaism that is most alive and flourishing in the state of Israel today is Judaism from Minsk, Mir, Ponovich, and we have boldly marched back to the 18th century ghetto. Now, that to me is paradoxical, which is a polite word for Meshuggah. <laughs> Rabboni Shalom. There was, in biblical times, a group of people called Kohanim, who lived lives of absolute holiness, who ministered in the domain of holiness, and they were people that everyone looked up to, there were a small proportion of the people, an elite, and today's Haredi world are the Kohanim of our generation. I respect and I admire them, but that is not the whole of the Jewish people. Even though we were called to be a Mamlechet Kohanim, we were, not in, we were not ever meant to be a people who merely spend their lives in the holy. You know what the Lubavitcher Rebbe and the Gera Rebbe said was the sin of the spies? How come those ten spies, each of whom was a prince and a person of renown, came back and said, we don't want to enter the land of Israel? Did they lack faith? The Gera Rebbe and the Lubavitcher Rebbe said, no. 
Why did they not want to go into Eretz Yisrael? Because they said, so long as we're here in the wilderness, we eat the bread of God, we drink water from a miracle, we're surrounded by the clouds of glory. Do we want to give up that holiness in order to build a land and construct a society and grow crops and be part of the real world? That was the sin of the spies. That was not virtue, that was frankly lack of courage. And therefore I say, yes, let there be an elite of people who learn all day long and inspire the rest of us. But read the Torah and you will see. It contains laws of how to build a living society on the principles of justice, compassion, the sanctity of life and the non-negotiable dignity of the individual. And in order to achieve those things, you got to leave the ghetto, get out into the world and bring Torah into the Rashuta Rabim, the public domain. And just think for one moment what would happen if the Rosh Yeshiva who are currently presiding over one of the most wondrous growths in all of Jewish history, said to the Talmudim, Hebra, Kindelach, you have spent five years learning Gemara. I look in your face and I see the Shekhinah in your eyes. Go out there and serve in the Israeli army. kids who need special assistance. Go out there and help the poor. Do you know what would happen? There would be an explosion of Kedusha in Eretz Israel. The most secular Israelis would open up in love and warmth and Israel would be what it is supposed to be, a light to the nations. And let us have the courage to know that our faith does not get diminished by being shared with those who have less faith because spiritual goods, the more you share, the more you have and let us have the courage to go and share our faith with the world. One last question. I had the pleasure of seeing you at an incredible, very large interfaith conference at Emory, where the Dalai Lama was speaking, an expert in Muslim uh, culture and a Christian uh, preaching. And in line, waiting, there were just an enormous amount of people weaving through the campus of Emory, and the buzz was that the Dalai Lama was at Emory, and everybody was buzzing about the Dalai Lama being at Emory. And we got inside, and all of you were speaking and answering questions, and it was an incredible cultural exchange. And you were brilliant. I mean, absolutely brilliant. I was so proud to be a Jew in that audience. And as we all filed out, and it took a long time to get out, every single person around me, as we were weaving, was asking, how do you get to be Jewish? Because you were so fascinating, so compelling, and um, just so interesting that it made Judaism sing and dance beyond every every person that was speaking on the panel. So it was, I was so proud to be a Jew that day. And there were people lining up to go to Halal and Babat to find out how to do it. My question is, what is what is the next act? What are you going to do with this incredible mind and this incredible talent as you set down from your position? 
I, uh, let me tell you why I accepted that invitation. First of all, I love the Dalai Lama. He was with us at Amritsar, and he was saying uh, he felt such a uh, kinship with the Jewish people. He said, in fact, if, I, if, only I, 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 if only I had one of those, I might consider being Jewish myself. So somebody picked out a yarmulke, and the Dalai Lama sat there wearing a yarmulke for the rest of the evening. A lovely, lovely man. The reason I agreed to do this uh, seminar on happiness at Emory is because what a change! Somebody wants to talk about Jews and happiness! You know, we do intermediate existential angst, postdoctoral grief, misery, suffering, you name it. Happiness! Come on! I love it! I just love it! So we had a wonderful time in Emory and it was just lovely and Judaism is about happiness. The first word in the book of Psalms is Ashra. The curses in Deuteronomy are only because Tachat Hashem lo avadata Hashem alokecha besimcha v'tuv levov merov kol Hashem gets angry when you don't serve Him in joy and goodness of heart in the abundance of everything. And uh, so uh, that's what I see is doing. Look, let me be uh, blunt with you. Uh, the buzzword of the 20th century is globalization. And for everyone else, it is the newest of the new. For us, it is the oldest of the old. For at least 2,000 years, we've been scattered around the world. And yet we saw ourselves and were seen by others as one nation. The world's first, for 20 centuries, the world's only global nation. And now that uh, the new media have made globalization real, that we can communicate through the internet in real time, globally, um, I think this is magical. I think it comes from Hashem. I, I think it has to come from Hashem. I mean, go figure. A nice Jewish boy called Mark Zuckerberg at Harvard has a row with his girlfriend, invents Facebook, and five years later governments fall throughout the Middle East. You couldn't write a script like that. If you're Aaron Sorkin, you probably could. But one way or another, every revolution in communications technology is Hashem knocking at our door saying, Use me to communicate Torah. I don't know if you know this. Judaism was born in a revolution of information technology. One of the greatest the world has ever known. Writing was invented in Mesopotamia. Writing has been independently invented seven different places at different times. Mesopotamian cuneiform, Egyptian hieroglyphics, Chinese ideograms, Indus Valley script, the Mayans, the Aztecs, and the Minoan script known as Linear B. But because writing used pictograms or ideograms, you needed to learn lots and lots of symbols. The official Chinese dictionary 
1870 lists 40,000 different symbols. When you have that many symbols to learn, only a tiny elite can be literate. And therefore you have, in all those societies, a hierarchical society in which the few know and the many are ignorant. Judaism was born in perhaps the greatest of all information technology breakthroughs, the invention of the alphabet. Alphabet comes from Aleph Beit, that's where it's from. Judas, the first alphabet in history, was the Proto-Sinaitic script or Proto-Semitic script discovered in Sarabit in the Sinai Desert by the English and archaeologist Flinders Petrie in 1903, circa 38 centuries ago. And when you reduce all of knowledge to a 22-character symbol set, you make it possible for everyone to become literate. And that is what Isaiah means when he says, All your children shall be learned of the Lord. Jews had universal literacy long before any other culture in history. Therefore, every revolution in communications technology is God saying, Use me. And therefore, I... Uh, I'm re re resigning, retiring from my chief rabbinate. In order to see whether we can use this new technology of the iPad, YouTube, and coming to places like this and relating globally, and seeing whether we can do this extraordinary thing of becoming once again Goy Echad Ba'aret, one nation on earth. I have to tell you the brain is nature's most brilliant calculating machine, not because it's big, but because of its incredible connections. There are so many neural pathways, it's the connections that make us brilliant. And let me just end with one little story which will show you what the power of Jews when we use our connections. In 1999 I went to make a television program with the BBC in, in uh, Kosovo at the end of the NATO action in Kosovo. And uh, you know I went to, uh, went to uh, uh, Pristina, the capital, you know, all the streets filled with bomb rubble and I go to see the commander of the NATO forces, commander called Michael Jackson, not that Michael Jackson, another Michael Jackson, General Sir Michael Jackson and I go and see him and the first thing he says to me is, I cannot tell you the debt we owe to your people. Our people? He said, the most important signal for all the Kosovan Albanians who are returning home that life has returned to normal is that the schools open on time. He said, your people have made sure all the schools open on time. So I, I thanked him on behalf of Am Yisrael. You remember Mendel the waiter, Rabbi Lamb? I was Mendel the waiter. He thanked me on behalf of all Israel. And I went around and asked how many Jews in Pristina? To which the answer came back, nine. Now go figure, nine Jews in Pristina. However, the Hashem, entirely for the sake of the Jewish people, invented something called the mobile phone. You know Israelis use the mobile phone three times as much as any other nation on earth. 
So what happens? They need schools open in Pristina. So the Jews in Pristina get on the phone to the Joint, to Israel, etc., etc. And within a couple of days, you've got the whole Jewish people descending on Pristina to open the schools and Bob's your uncle. Nine people can revolutionize a society when they use that global power of connectedness which is the Jewish people. So how we're going to do it exactly, I don't know, but Hashem will provide, and let's go global in the global age. Thank you very much. A special word of thanks uh, to CSS, the members of our community that protect our community. We wish you well in your retirement, in those chosen words and efforts. Your genteel way, the way you articulate our faith and our people is extraordinary. You spoke of Moshe's conversation between the generations. My brother is a stellar example of that effort. My wife and I had a chance this past Shabbos to enjoy a meal in his home, to see the Tvar Torahs, the conversation elaborating yet the next generation. We know that our mother raised an extraordinary example in her household with an expanding Shabbos table and those candles that remain lit in our minds even to this day. Her covered abrios, her humanity, and her respect for those that were unique and different is something that resonates today. I would urge everybody here, if you would like to see the stock of Abraham that we were cut from, continued and elaborated to more tables to help my brother do what he does, because he does it with such a strong legacy that our mother and this dear man spoke of. There's an envelope, you do what you like, you go online, but we need your help to make sure that this room will be five times its size when we convene next year. Thank you and Shabbat You're all invited to the 10th floor for a dessert reception. We prepared a lot. Please make your way to the 10th floor, either through the elevator or the flight, the stairs. We've got great food. Thank you all for coming. Thank you, Rabbi. Thanks.